Let's, uh, let's pray together as we come and look at God's word. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do want to ask that you would be with us this morning by your spirit, helping us not only to understand the words that you've written, but also to see how they change everything and speak to us. Uh, Lord, I know my own weakness, I know my sin, and I know that none of us here this morning deserve to hear your voice in your word, but we pray that you might be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I wonder if there's nothing like coming to the end of something to focus your mind. I wonder if in the last 30 minutes of an exam, and I put that picture up there just to fill you with dread, uh, in the last 30 minutes of an exam, whether you uh, work harder and smarter than you do uh, in the rest of the exam. I wonder if on the last lap of a race, you run harder and more determined than you did in the first lap. I guess that's probably the case, isn't it? And I guess that's because the case, because you realize, don't you, what you've not actually been able to do up until that point. You realize, don't you, in the last 30 minutes, what you've not written, what you've left undone that you uh, should have already done. Now, I, I don't want to be too nostalgic, but there will be a time for nostalgia, I guess, but it's not this morning. Uh, but I think coming to an end of my time as pastor here at Egbeth is having that same effect on me. I, I want Lord Willing to run this last lap with, with full vigor. Uh, but to do that, I'm also conscious of the holes and weaknesses in the things that have gone before. And I wonder whether one of those weaknesses in, is in teaching uh, systematic theology. Uh, over the last 15 years or so, we have worked our way, if you've been here, regularly for those last 15 years, we've worked our way through pretty much the, well, through the whole of the New Testament and pretty much all of the Old Testament in expository sermons. But uh, my reflection is that we've maybe not been so effective, or I have not been so effective at teaching theology. Theology are the big ideas of God's word that run all the way through the scriptures and hold it together, answering questions about, you know, what does the whole Bible have to teach us about who God is and what God has done and what salvation is? Now, not teaching that well is a problem because good theology is not so much an end in itself, but rather good theology is how we see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And seeing the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to grow as a Christian. Now, I could say more about that, but that's just an introduction to say that my plan is this morning not to step through every verse of Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. There is a sermon like that on our church website if you want to find it. Instead, what I want us to do this morning is look at this section of God's word that was written and read for us and say, what does this passage have to teach us about justification by faith, the doctrine or the theology of justification by faith? Which means, I think, that this is not a sermon that I would have thought to have preached 15 years ago, but I do now, this morning, think this is really, really important for us. We're going to look at what does... Uh, what is justification by faith? What is it for? How can it be mine? Why is it important? And why is it the key to joy? So let's have a look at those things together. What is justification by faith? Now let's start here because Romans 4 gives you one of the clearest short sentence definitions in the Bible of justification by faith. And then he repeats those ideas throughout the passage. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
justification by faith. God the Father counting righteousness to the ungodly. The word counting is all the way through the passage. It's not actually Paul's word, is it? It comes instead from Genesis 15. If you look at verse 3, he quotes uh, Abraham having believed God, trusted that he would keep his promise to him. It's counted as righteous. He is counted as righteous on account of that faith. Paul defines counted in verse 4, contrasting it to wages. Counting, he says, is not like paying wages, where someone does a job and then you pay them as a reward for what they have done. That's not what's going on with Abraham. Instead, uh, counting is more like uh, regarding or reckoning to someone's account, considering them in a certain way. The root of the word counting here is the verb to say or to tell. And in effect, what God is doing in counting Abraham as righteous is he is literally saying something about who Abraham is, something which he has not earned and he does not deserve, but which is true because God declares it to be true. What is it that God is declaring to be true? He is declaring that Abraham is righteous. That's what he's declaring. Even though... Whilst he says that about Abraham, it is clear that Abraham is not in himself righteous at all. He's a pagan. But as Abraham believes God, verse 3, by that God he is counted to be righteous, in the right, perfect, covered in godlike holiness and moral uprightness. Now, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, now Steve, that's scandalous, right? That's scandalous. How can... Abraham be declared to be righteous by God? How can he count someone as in the right when clearly they're not in the right? This would be like me saying that something is right when it's clearly wrong. We shouldn't do that, should we? Now, if you're thinking anything along those lines, then that's brilliant because it means you understand what we're we're talking about because that's what is going on. It is scandalous. Justification by faith is scandalous. It's scandalously brilliant for sinners like us that God without for a moment contradicting his holy goodness or truthfulness, can count sinners as righteous. It's our only hope. So how can it be? How can God declare such a thing? Well, look at the quote from uh, Psalm 32 in verses 7 and 8. Notice how Paul introduces it in verse 6. He says that David, in Psalm 32, is talking about the blessing of God counting righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes the psalm talks about forgiveness and sins being covered. And it ends with the count word there in verse 8, isn't it? When he uses it of sin and not righteousness. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. These are uh, hints, really, but we've seen the reality in Romans chapter 3. Justification by faith works because at its heart is a great exchange. God is counting sinners as righteous whilst counting his son as sinful. He is crediting sin to Christ and crediting righteousness to us. He is counting our sins against Christ and not against us so that he can count Christ's righteousness to us. It's the heart of our salvation. It's not our works, but God's works for us in Christ. Christ becomes our sin and our sacrifice, and we become righteousness. Not because he has ceased to be true, but because God is not just true, but is also at the same time full of love, the giver of a great gift that we could not earn. So that's what justification by faith is. It's being counted righteous in Christ as he is counted with our sin. Who is justification by faith for? 
Now, this is crucial because I don't think we're always super clear on this. So listen up. Look again at verse 5 and see what is the prerequisite or the qualification for being justified, being declared right. Well, yes, it's faith. We'll come and see that in a moment. But what is it alongside that? Notice verse 5. He who justifies who? The ungodly. Do you see that? Just let that fry your circuits for a moment this morning. What do, I, what do I need, what needs to be true of me for me to be a suitable recipient of a righteous standing before God? What do I need? Ungodliness. That's what I need. Now listen this morning, if you're from a Roman Catholic background, and I know a number of you are, I love that you're here. It's great that you're with us this morning. I'm so pleased that so many of you found a spiritual home in our church. This, I think, is where you need to be super clear this morning because Romans chapter 4, verse 5 causes havoc to Roman Catholic doctrine because the official position of the Roman Catholic Church is that at the heart of salvation, God infuses righteousness into us. It's not like he pours it into us. In other words, he's not so much declaring us to be in the right while they're ungodly, but instead sort of making us godly by an infusion of righteousness and then declaring them as righteous as that infusion takes effect. But you need to be super clear that that's not what Romans 4 is teaching. It's not what the scriptures teach. You know, take this example of Abraham, which is going all the way through the section. In verses 9 and 10, when did God count Abraham to be righteous? Was it when he had infused sufficient righteousness from God? No. It was before any of that. It was before he was circumcised, verse 11. In other words, Abraham was declared, spoken to be in the right, declared right, justified by God, by faith, eternally secure, in the right before God, before any act of obedience on his heart. Now, lots of us get in a muddle here, and that's okay. I, too, am an easily confused person. I don't want anyone this morning to feel bad because of things they didn't know. That's not my point at all this morning. But if we do miss this, or if you end up in a church that does not teach this, you will be robbed of your assurance as a Christian. Because you'll just be led to feel guilty all the time. And led to feel guilty in order probably to do what the church leaders want you to do. Turn up at church to stop you feeling guilty perhaps. But the truth is, God does not infuse righteousness to sinners to make them deserve his salvation. Rather, he counts or imputes, is the theological word, imputes righteousness to sinners whilst they are at that same time still ungodly. So that right now, in this very moment, in this room, sitting where you're sitting, standing where I am standing, with all that we've done wrong, in all its ugly details, you know, with all our broken thoughts, my broken thoughts, my wicked desires, my hurtful actions, my unkind, selfish impulses, you know, my, my selfish self-pity, even with all of that, I am at the same time righteous before God for the sole reason that he has counted me as righteous in Jesus Christ. I've, I've never really understood why churches around the world, and certainly in our corner of the world, are full of people pretending to be better than they really are. Why is that? Why would we do that? The qualification for salvation is ungodliness. If we pretend that we're better than we are, we are disqualifying ourselves from the very thing that we know we need. So I know this morning that any number of you are probably sat here worrying about your salvation. Am I really a Christian? Do I really know that God has saved me? 
you know, you look around you and say, well, all of these, all these people, they're so good, aren't they? They're so good. Their kids are sitting quietly. Why not pinching me? Can God really have saved me? They are Christian types. I look at them and they, you know, they're wearing Christian type clothes. They look Christian from the outside. I can see they're a Christian type and I'm not like that. I don't feel like that. I don't look like that. I don't want to be like that. You know, Pastor, this morning, if you knew what I had done, what I was thinking right now, or you knew where I'd been this week or what I'd seen this week, you would not be teaching me this stuff. I'm a wreck. Well, listen, this morning, let me ask you just one simple question. Let me ask you this. Are you ungodly? Well, then, welcome. Welcome. Because justification by faith is for the ungodly. And when, as a Christian this morning, when you sin, you don't sin and then go, oh, God, will you still love me now I've done that? God, will you, will you still love me and forgive me for this? Wondering whether now you're too bad for God or he'll take his salvation away from you. Now, in one sense, what you do when you sin as a Christian, you bring the sin to God. He's not surprised. You were surprised, but he wasn't. He knew it already. And you take it to God and you go, Jesus died for that as well, didn't he? Jesus died for that as well. Thank you so much that you knew the depth of my sinful need and counted it to Christ that I might be counted with his righteousness. Thirdly, how can justification by faith be mine? We're sort of straining verse 5 for all the truths we can get out of it, but have another look at verse 5. How do we receive justification by faith? Answer, Well, by belief in him who justifies. You see this? Obviously, this belief here is the same as the faith which we've been talking about over the last few weeks. It's the faith is the empty hand that receives the gift. Faith itself is not a work, is it? It's an empty hand that receives the gift, the gift of righteousness rather than the payment of works, as it put in verse 4. But here this faith is spelt out more as, as belief. Belief in him who justifies. Now, I've tried to be clear this morning on the errors of the Roman Catholic Church on justification by faith, but let me try and bring this closer to us this morning by also being clear about some of our mistakes that we make as an evangelical church, as a Bible church, who love to talk about justification by faith. We love talking about the atonement. We love talking about the cross. We love talking about forgiveness. We talk about it all the time. I want us to notice something really simple from verse 5. And that is that we are saved not by belief in justification by faith. We are saved instead by belief in the one who justifies by faith alone. In other words, salvation itself is not belief in the means of salvation so much as it is belief in the beauty of the one who has provided the means of salvation. Think about the example of Abraham. I know you You were looking at this a few weeks ago with Ollie when I was preaching at Bridge Chapel and he was preaching here. Abraham is the father of nobody. He's living in a tent with an aging wife who is beautiful, we're told, but she's still aging. And they had no children. Despite having received a promise that meant he uprooted his family and moved to where God had told him to be and he receives this promise that he's going to be a great blessing. And God turns up again, doesn't he, and appoints him to the stars in the sky and says, start counting, Abraham, start counting because that's how many children and descendants you're going to have. Now, what at that point does Abraham do? Well, he gets excited not so much about the means by which God will use to keep that promise. Instead, he looks at the promise maker and goes, well, this guy is promising me descendants like this. 
What kind of person gives that kind of gift to me? What, what kind of love is that for me and, and nobody with no children to receive that kind of promise? And he believes the Lord, we're told, in Genesis 15. And it's counted to him as righteousness. This is so helpful for us this morning. It is possible in churches like ours to be so concerned for theological accuracy. And it's right to be concerned about theological accuracy. That we forget the point is that being clear on justification by faith is meant to point us to the loving wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're meant to see in justification by faith this amazing planning father who is using the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is willingly achieving this plan of salvation in the power of the spirit. And our Christian lives can become just a bit dry, can't they? Like a transaction that we make to deal with the bad stuff that we do. You know, the gospel becomes a sort of impersonal forgiveness machine for people who need a bit of help in life. You know, a cash point for forgiveness, perhaps, for when I screw up. But that's not what's going on here. Instead, we're being drawn to love the one who justifies by faith. Think about it like this. Imagine this morning that you're learning to drive. Some of you, very soon, are going to be learning to drive. And imagine, okay, this is the, the, the worst case scenario, but it might happen that you smash your car up in a driving lesson. It's a mess of tangled metal and expensive bills. And you come home knowing that you don't have the money or the resources to pay to fix the car. It's so smashed up. It's such a mess. But your dad takes on an extra job, sacrifices his own time and energy. He works late nights and early mornings to earn the money to repair the car and get you back out on the road. Now, perhaps the, the way that your dad did that was really neat. You, you reflect on the job that he did, what he was willing to do in order to get the money, in order to pay for the car to be repaired. And you reflect on that and the cost to him and of the grace that gave back what you messed up at no cost to you but at great cost to him. But the beauty of the extra job and the restored car are what? They are signposts, aren't they, to the love that your dad has for you, that he was willing to do that. And that's Paul's point here. Justification by faith is, is ours in Christ. And justification by faith teaches us that God's love for us in Christ is sufficient for all of our sin. That God's love for us finds its source in his loving character, not in our loveliness. That our salvation rests on an unchanging, immovable, irresistible love of God for unlovely, God, ungodly sinners like us. It shows that Christ is beautiful and lovely and worthy of all our faith. Just pause this morning in your mind and think, can I imagine such love? Have you ever experienced love that cannot be explained by the loveliness of the object, but only by the character of the lover himself? Don't you, don't you want to trust a savior like that? Don't you long to believe in him? I don't doubt that in this room this morning, there are people who have never seen this about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're from a Christian home. And you've been taught the gospel, but you basically believe that it is just like that kind of forgiveness cash point. I do stuff wrong, I say a prayer, Jesus forgives me, I get on with my life. When really the point is, Christ is the lover of your soul. You've never met a person like him. He's the one you were made for. He's the purpose of your life. He's the goal of eternity. So come to him and be saved. Fourthly, why is justification by faith important? 
I think sometimes we can jump over Romans 4. If you're working your way through Romans, chapter 3 is famous and it's brilliant. You know, we love Romans chapter 3. Chapter 5, also awesome, particularly the first bit, the second half bit, more difficult to understand. But we love Romans 5 and we love Romans 3, and Romans 4 can feel like a bit of Old Testament proof texting. Why all this about Abraham? Paul, you know, why not just jump straight into chapter 5 and not that bothered about Abraham? But that's to miss this mind-bendingly brilliant fact in chapter 4, which is justification by faith is important because why? It's always been God's only way of saving people. That's why. You see, if Romans 4 is right, then both Abraham and David are regenerate believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because they're time travelers or because they knew all the ins and outs of the gospel stories. No, but because God has only ever saved anyone through faith in Christ. Either Christ revealed in the promises that he fulfilled or Christ taught in the gospels pointing back to what he's done. It's either Christ in the Old Testament covenants or Christ fulfilling those covenants in the gospel accounts. Try to put it on the slide there of people being pointed forward to the cross and people being pointed back to it, both believing by faith in Christ. And Paul shows this to the Jewish audience in Rome and says, you know, this hero of yours, you know, you you talk about Abraham a lot, you talk about his psychic David a lot. Abraham with the great covenant promises of Genesis 12 and David with the Davidic promise of a kingdom that would uh, last forever and ever. Both those guys, believers in Jesus and recipients of justification by faith. And that is why justification by faith is important, because it's always been what God is teaching. It's always been how God has saved people. And its fulfillment in the work of Christ is what God has always been working towards. Imagine, this is going to take a stretch of your imagination, that on December the 18th, England win the World Cup. If anyone watched the game on Friday night, that's significantly unlikely. But just imagine for a moment. You imagine an interview with Gareth Southgate, having won the World Cup, what's he going to say? Well, I don't know what he'd say, but I guarantee amongst those things would he say, this is the culmination of years and years of effort. Years and years of planning and thinking have gone into this. Now, it's not going to happen, but that's what's going on in Romans chapter 4. What Paul is showing is that years and years of planning and promising and pointing have gone into justification by faith. God has always been about this work. He has always been pointing to it. It's the center of how God has saved all the way through history. So if you're taught in RE at school, perhaps, that Martin Luther invented justification by faith in the 16th century, then you know, don't you, that's not true. It's been taught all the way through the scriptures. Abraham experienced it as he believed in the Lord. Fifthly and finally, maybe most excitingly, why justification by faith is the key to joy. Maybe you noticed the repetition in verses 6 to 8 of the word blessing, and it was great that Jez also led us through Psalm 32 earlier. David is saying in Psalm 32 that it's a blessing to be the free recipient of justification by faith. The word blessing really means happy or joyful. This is the thing that everybody wants. We all want to be happy, don't we? We all want to be blessed. This is why the materialist buys new stuff, because they believe it will make them happy. It's why the workaholic works so hard, because they believe somewhere deep in their heart that it's the security of the money that work will bring which will make them happy. It's why the religious person goes to church or the temple or prays and fasts because they believe that God will then give them happiness somehow in return. But David said, no, 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 
that, that kind of happiness that we're all searching for, no, no, it doesn't come from there. It comes from justification by faith, from forgiveness. And I wonder whether you've ever thought about why is it that forgiveness like that is so good? Why is justification a key to joy? Well, look at verse 11. Let me pick it up halfway through verse 11. The purpose was to make him, that's Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Here's the thing. Now catch this if you can, because it's so helpful. Justification by faith is the key to joy because it makes me family. In other words, justification by faith brings us joy because it leads to adoption. That's what all those verses are about. We are included by justification by faith in the family that is gathered in Abraham. This family that God has been promising all the way through the scriptures. You know, the, ins- the outsider becomes the insider. The outcast becomes a child. The lonely comes home. You know, the materialist is wrong to think that joy comes through possessions. The workaholic is wrong to think that it comes through status or money. The religious person is wrong to think they'll find it by securing God's blessings through their works. Instead, joy, happiness comes from receiving the free gift of justification through knowing Christ and knowing in him that you belong to him with an unbreakable bond. Justification by faith means you can call Abraham your father and live in the family of the people of God. Let me just finish with this thought. I wonder what you uh, think the best thing about the new creation is going to be. If you're a Christian this morning and you're longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think is going to be the best thing about the new creation? Like, I mean, it's a hard question to answer, isn't it? I struggle to imagine the wonder of not sinning anymore. Imagine that. Not only not doing it, but not even wanting to. What about the wonder of, of not grieving anymore? No longer being in pain. No longer suffering. But I wonder if, if, if what the, the Bible points me to, and what justification by faith leading to adoption points me to, is that the best thing about the new creation is this that when we arrive there, we will finally know, without any doubt or contradiction, we will finally know that we're home. We're home. This is where I was made to be. This is who I belong with. This is whom I belong to as we gaze on the Lord Jesus. This is my family. God is my Father, Christ is our Savior and our groom. The Spirit will be bringing joy and power and glory and life. And you'll want for nothing else because you'll be finally home. Home. Well, let me pray for us as a close. Loving Heavenly Father, thank you so much that it's possible for ungodly people like us to know with real assurance complete forgiveness for all and every single sin so that we can know with confidence that one day through no efforts of our own and with no uncertainty in our own actions that we will be home with you forever and ever. 
how we thank you for this great truth of justification by faith. And thank you that justification by faith points beyond itself to your loving goodness for us. It is unimaginably brilliant that we would be so loved by you that in the person of the Son, you would be willing to leave the glories of heaven, take on our sin, and die on the cross in our place that we might be forgiven. Lord, we love you. And we're astounded by your love and mercy to us. Help us, we pray, to bask in and delight in and wonder in all your love for us in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.